Generation Church, based in the beautiful Rex Theater in the heart of downtown Pensacola, Florida. Our hope is that today's teaching will encourage and equip you to be firm in faith, to fulfill the call of God in your life, and to finish well. Grab your Bible, open up your notes app, and let's dive in. Lord, we declare your praises, and we are grateful that you reign that you are enthroned and we just have to join heaven and we just have to join the army of angels to worship you. Father, we choose this morning to bow down before you and recognize your greatness, your glory. We love you, God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We are in this series of sermon called In Plain Sight, where we look at Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled at the birth of Jesus. And we already looked at the miracle of the virgin birth and the town of Bethlehem as being the announced and prophesied town where the Messiah was to be born. And last week, Pastor Brian talked about the escape to Egypt when Jesus was born and how this was fulfilling all the Messiah's expectation as Jesus, the new deliverer, the one who would bring freedom from slavery of sin. And today our text is found in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 to 18, and I'm going to read it to you. Then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise man. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I hope you are encouraged this morning. Miss Vistex, bring great joy to you. Merry Christmas and joy to the world. This is not your typical Christmas uh, sermon or typical Christmas text that we turn to usually in the Christmas season, but we thought it was really important to focus on these prophecies that were fulfilled at the time of Jesus' birth as a way to really turn our attention to Jesus and make him the center of this season, but as a way to understand what God is doing uh, over and over again throughout history. So there are three elements I want to point to as we look at this text and try to unpack it to uh, make sense of the story and what it means for us today. The first element I want to point to is this clash of two kingdoms. We have on the one hand the kingdom of darkness represented by Herod, and on the other hand the kingdom of God represented by Jesus. And from a very earthly perspective, we can see that these two kingdoms were clashing, Herod being this ruthless, mean, uh, paranoid, and insecure king who was only self-absorbed by uh, his own dominion, his own kingdom, his own interest, uh, not trying to protect the people of Judea, but really trying to protect his own interest and his own reputation. And we have uh, Jesus, the humble king, prophesied um, in the Old Testament, coming here to announce freedom and forgiveness of sin. This humble little baby born in a manger, yet fulfilling all the expectations of a Messiah. And this new king of the Jews was definitely uh, set against this king of darkness, Herod, 
And it's not far of a stretch to say that Herod was the incarnation of evil. Think of Hitler or someone along those lines. Herod was known to be so cruel and so um, vicious in his way of ruling over the people of Judea. At one point in his life, he had one of his wives, he had actually 10 wives, but he had one of his wives uh, murdered as well as three of his children, all that based on fear and mistrust. Uh, His rule was characterized by so many plots and intrigues and weird, strange schemes that he was trying to come up with against the people that he would not really rely on and was always fearful. Herod didn't come from a lineage of kings, and so therefore he knew he was not the most likely chosen king appointed by Rome to rule over Judea. And so he became very insecure about any potential threat of a new king or a new kingdom. At one point at almost the end of his life, when he knew he would pass away, he ordered for all the notable Jews to be gathered in a huge auditorium, and he asked his man to kill them all. Uh, because he knew that he would not be mourned at his death because of his uh, tyranny and oppression that he was imposing on the people of Israel. Thankfully, his leaders didn't execute the order, but that tells us a lot about his personality and the way he was. Definitely an incarnation of evil. And Herod was also known to be a fox, uh, very crafty in his ways, and he knew that um, he had been tricked. He had been outfoxed. <laughs> Him, the fox, had been outfoxed by this wise man. And so out of fear, purely based out of fear, instead of trying to investigate where Jesus could be to have Jesus taken away, he had the approach of better be safe than sorry and ordered all these male children to and under to be killed. What a dark moment in Israel history. What a dark time and a tragedy, a holocaust that was um, terrible to witness back in those days. So that's the first element. The second element is this weeping that is um, referenced in Matthew's description of the birth of Jesus. This loud weeping and lamentation, which is a direct reference to what the prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 31. And I want to read it to you again. Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because, for her children because they are no more. What is really interesting is that the context of uh, this uh, passage and and this expression of weeping and lamentation is really in uh, a passage full of hope and announcements of a new kingdom and brighter future for Israel. Yet, in the midst of this passage, there is lamentation and weeping over what Israel was going through, which was the exile to Babylon. If you are familiar with the story of Israel, at one point in the year 586 before Jesus Christ was born, Israel was taken into captivity to Babylon. And so they had to travel a route, a road all the way to Babylon, which is modern Iraq. And on, this, on the way to Babylon, they stopped in Ramah, um, a, town, a town where loud weeping and lamentation were expressed. And um, the, what really strikes me in this passage is that it's not just about 
the lamentation. It's about the anticipation of this newborn king. It's about the anticipation of a new hope. And I want to read verse 16 and 17 because they tell us a lot about this brighter future. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. And of course, uh, if you've read Jeremiah before, there is a wonderful passage about the new covenant that God is announcing to uh, Israel, and it's found in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What a beautiful passage about the covenant that God will make with us through Jesus Christ, writing his law on our hearts by his spirit. And so you have to understand that Matthew is writing his story about Jesus to a uh, a Jewish audience predominantly. And any Jewish person who would have heard the story of Matthew uh, would have right away thought of the rest of the context of Jeremiah because they were very familiar with the story of Israel and the different oracles and uh, prophecies of the Old Testament. That's how they grew up. They were passing on to one generation to the next different prophecies and, and, and promises of God. And so they would have remembered the rest of the story of what Jeremiah would have announced. So for them, it was weeping and lamentation, but it was really uh, the storm before the calm or you know, a, a, a dark day before a new dawn, a dark day before a new hope. This is what theologian uh, Kostenberger and Stewart in their book, The First Days of Jesus, say about this passage. Matthew notes that Israel went into exile in Babylon by way of a painful process that involved suffering and loss, but would eventually lead to the restoration of the entire nation. In the same way, Jesus went into exile in Egypt in a painful process that again brought suffering and loss to Rachel's descendants, but would lead to the complete fulfillment of a restoration, healing, and salvation prophesied by Jeremiah. So the way the, uh, the Jewish nation, the Jews would have understood the story of Jesus and the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy would have been as a prelude to the greater story. If this is just the beginning of something greater that is to come, there is hope, there are better days coming. The third element I want to point to is the, um, the fact that Jesus functions here in the story uh, of Matthew as the antitype of Moses. If you were not here uh, last week um, at, in our services, Pastor Brian spoke on this exile to Egypt and as Jesus reliving the story of Israel and Jesus being the antitype of Israel, the perfect Israel, the perfect fulfillment of all hopes. And I encourage you to listen to that message if you haven't had a chance to. And so this is a method of interpretation called the antitype uh, or typology. And Jesus here functions as the antitype of Moses. Let me read to you the one uh, 
passage of a story of Moses that will right away make you think about what Jesus is going through in his first days. And it is found in Exodus chapter 1, verse 15 to 22. Exodus chapter 1, verse 15 to 22. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shephra and the other Puha. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and you see them on a the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live." What a striking parallel to the story of Jesus uh, when Herod ordered all the male children to and under to be killed as a way to make sure that the king of Jews would be uh, destroyed and taken away. So Jesus is relieving the story of Israel and is functioning as the antitype of Moses, the perfect Moses that God would send to deliver his people from bondage. Not just the earthly bondage, but the bondage of sin, the slavery of our rebellion against God. Now that we have these three elements in mind, I want to stop and consider how this story can apply to our lives and what are three main things we can learn from this story today. The first element is that God is sovereign. God is in absolute control over every single detail of our lives. This is what Mark Talbot, a theologian, says about the sovereignty of God, a wonderful definition. Scripture is clear that nothing arises, exists, or endures independently of God's will. Nothing in our lives happens outside of God's allowance or God allowing it to happen, God's control. You know, you can't call it God allows certain things to happen or God wills certain things to happen. Whatever you choose to call it, the reality is that God is in control. If the fate of the world and your own life would rest on your own capacity to choose well every single day, you would crumble and you would be paralyzed by fear. Imagine your everyday life. Every morning as you get up, you already have dozens of choices to make. The clothes you will wear, the phone calls you will make, the kind of interactions you will have with your family, your friends, your co-workers, the bills you will have to pay, the trip you want to organize and not organize, the scheduling of certain appointments, doctor's appointments, surgeries, so on and so forth. There are so many choices that, are, that can have ripple effects in our lives. And if we were in control and if really everything was resting upon us and our ability to choose well and to make wise and godly decisions every single day, the world would collapse. It would definitely collapse if I was in charge. I can guarantee you that. But the reality is that we rest as believers on the assurance that God is in control. And whatever you're going through right now in your own life, 
whether that's a tragedy or it is a peaceful season, you can rest on that thought that God is sovereign. God rules. He is the ruler. There's a great story in the Bible that uh, we go to over and over again to comfort us and to uh, feed that assurance that God is in control. And it's the story of Joseph. You may remember that story where Joseph, being the, the 11th son of Jacob, as he was growing up, stirred the jealousy of his brothers. And as his brothers were becoming increasingly jealous, they decided at one point to say, stop, enough is enough. We've had enough of his brother, who is the favorite of, of Jacob, uh, our father, so we're going to sell him to Egypt as a slave. And he was sold, spent years in Egypt, first as a slave, and then became promoted and became king of Egypt with uh, amazing responsibilities. And his brothers had to return to, uh, had to, turn to Egypt to beg for uh, help and food as they were going through famine. And Joseph was able to reveal himself to his brothers and make sense of the whole story that unfolded for all these years. And this is what he will say to his brothers. We turn to Genesis chapter uh, 45, verse 4 to 8. Genesis chapter 45, verse 4 to 8. This is the dialogue between Joseph and his brothers. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times in this small passage, Joseph is interpreting his own story in light of the grander, the bigger story of Israel as God sent me here for a reason. You may think to yourself, we were in charge and we did this to you and we are really crippling and the guilt and all that. But I want to tell you, this is the real story. This is the real sense and meaning of my own story. God sent me here, not you. You were not in charge. You may have done something evil. You may have done something sinful. But this would not have happened unless God was in control of the story. And there's many things in our lives that it's really hard to make sense of. You may have gone through divorce. You may have lost someone very dear to you. You may be going through a tragedy right now. And you can be in the midst of all these things that are really painful and trying to make sense of um, the suffering and the agony. And there are times where it's really no time to think about this until one day God brings glory and brings light to every single aspect of our lives and we understand Oh God, you did this. You allowed this for a reason. I couldn't see it back then. Now I see clearly now. I see what you've done. And sometimes we feel like things are set against us and we try to fight God's plan like we are in charge and even in certain you know, religious streams, we're even encouraged to fight and fight and fight. And there is a place for spiritual warfare. There is a place for claiming certain things. But I believe sometimes we're not called to fight against God, but try to be sensitive to what God might be doing in our lives and try to recognize God is God. He is ruler over all the nations and he rules in my life. I may not understand what he's doing right now, but I choose to trust him and him alone. 
And there are many verses that I can go to to explain the sovereignty of God, but this is not the place and the time right now. But I've included these uh, two references here in your notes that you can hang on to if you want to. So I turn to the second thing we can learn from this story, and it is the fact that God allows suffering for a reason. Now, it may not have been easy for all these parents who had their male babies killed. I see, I see babies in the auditorium. I was just interacting with some babies before the service started, and the thought crossed my mind, what it must have been like for all these parents to have Roman soldiers knock at their door saying, hey, if you got a boy here, it's mine. We need to, we need to kill him. Imagine the agony of the parents. I mean, I have three children uh, who are pretty young, and I can imagine how devastated the parents must have been, how angry they must have been towards God, how confused and stressed and anxious they must have been for weeks and months and years, and why did God allow this to happen? Why did Jesus escape all this when we had all our male babies killed? I'm sure it must have been very tragic and hard to wrestle with all those questions. But in the end of the story, I, I would think it's safe to assume that they would have made sense of everything that happened by looking at Jesus and how crucial it was for Jesus to escape this tragedy as a way to highlight exponentially the beautiful restoration and the beautiful mission of Jesus. It was so crucial for Jesus to escape this to um, point towards the new kingdom that God would inaugurate for his life. You may know a person named Johnny Erickson, who is a famous author, wrote many books, even songs. She's a paralyzed woman, um, grew up handicapped basically for most of her life in pain and suffering. But she is a powerful encouragement to the disabled community in the world in a way to... um, honor God even in the midst of tragedy. She was paralyzed as a result of a swimming accident when she was a teenager and couldn't move for the rest of her life. And when she was still in the hospital uh, being treated for uh, her accident, a friend pastor was visiting her, trying to encourage her in this really tough time. And he said to her one sentence that really stood out to her and helped her throughout her whole life. And this is what he said. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Because God allows certain things to happen doesn't mean he approves them or rejoices over them or he's some kind of bipolar God who sometimes rejoices over bad things and then sometimes good things. Now, God is a good father. I want to declare that and affirm that this morning. God is a good father. But sometimes, for reasons we are, we have a hard time understanding until one day we're reunited with our Father in heaven, he does permit what he hates to accomplish what he loves for a greater purpose. And if you're wrestling with that question sometimes in your mind, I want to point you to the cross because at the, through the cross and the agony, uh, agony of Jesus, God permitted what he hated most to see his beloved son being crucified and tortured in order for him to accomplish what he loved most, which was to be reconciled with his creatures, us, to form a new kingdom, to form a people that he loves and that he want to be in relationship with. 
This is what Acts chapter 2, verse 22 verse 20, and 23 says, uh, when there's a wonderful interpretation of why Jesus was delivered to his enemies. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So you have on the one hand these people who killed Jesus, but they killed Jesus because he was predestined by the definite plan, but foreknowledge of God to be handed over to his enemies for that crucifixion. I know it's hard for us to make sense of all that, but this is what the Bible is encouraging us to consider in order sometimes to make sense of what God is doing in permitting what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So whatever you're going through, my third point that we can learn from this story is that there are better days coming. There is a hope. There is a future in God. And it doesn't mean that tomorrow you're going to wake up wealthy and healthy and all pains will be gone and you're going to have that car you've been dreaming about and that house you've been praying for. It might be that, and I, I, I wish that with all my heart for you, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is the good news that we can be at peace, we can be uh, comforted, we can have joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the promise of material possession. And I want to remind us of this Jeremiah 31 when, yes, there's weeping and lamentation, but the Jewish people would have thought right away, there's a new covenant. There is going to be a return. There is going to be a new kingdom. There is going to be a new hope, a brighter future for us because a a Messiah is coming. And for us, it's about clinging to God. It's about rejoicing in God. It's about finding our satisfaction in Him and looking towards the future where Jesus is going to come back and inaugurate the perfect, fully um, installed kingdom where we're going to enjoy his presence and his peace, joy forever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth. Psalm 30 verse 5 says this, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Yes, it might be the night for some of us today. I'm aware of that. I'm aware that it's easy for me to say these things as I'm not going through a deep tragedy in my life right now. But there is joy in the morning. Yes, there is darkness. And I've had some dark times, but there's, I've experienced also joy in the morning. Sometimes it was hard for me to make sense of the divorce that my parents went through when I was a baby and the fact that I didn't grow up with some siblings and that we were completely separated until one day I realized what God was doing. So I am aware that dark times may come, but joy comes in the morning. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is a glory, there is a weight of glory that can be on us. And if we take the time to turn attention to Jesus in this Christmas season, that can be dark for some people, we can feel the weight of glory. Feel the weight of God's presence and God's peace coming upon us. And that should really overwhelm us and push us forward. 
there are really two main responses that as disciples, as Christians, we should have when it comes to suffering and the sovereignty of God and the tragedies in the world. Uh, and the first one is to help and it's to comfort and it's to go. Uh, it is not to judge. It is not to try to interpret as a prophet what God is doing in the world today. Uh, there's a lot going on and happening right now, the war in Ukraine and Israel, and it's easy for us as Christians to try to turn to the Bible or turn to our own wisdom and interpret what's going on and say, well, God may be doing this or may God may be doing that. And, and we try to self-proclaim ourselves um, you know, prof- prophets when we're not. We're really not. <laughs> we are the people of God who are called to respond to suffering with love, with compassion, by saying to Jesus, I'm going to be your hand and your feet in the midst of this suffering where it hurts. And the second response we should have is to praise. Because no matter what happens, God stays the same and he's still worthy of our praises. He's still worthy to receive loud praises and thankfulness for who he is. And this is the story of Job, as you may be uh, familiar with in the Bible. Job, an honest and a man of integrity who had everything taken away from him. His health, his children, his properties. And in the beginning of the book of Job, he's going to say something so powerful. Job chapter 1. I'm turn to him. I like turning the pages of my Bible. Job chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. What a powerful response. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this job, Job, sorry, I always want to say as a French, uh, a job, a job, 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 whatever. Job, I'm going to say it the French way. <laughs> uh, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. How easy it is for us to charge God something. You know, we're looking for someone to blame when it hurts. And that's normal, that's human. I want someone, give me someone <laughs> to blame for this. But God is not to be blamed. God is to be worshipped. God is to be praised because he is a powerful being worthy of our praises, whatever the circumstance. So I want to encourage you uh, as we come to the end of this message um, to respond with praise. And for some of you, it might be very challenging, but you know what? There's real power in singing aloud our praises, not just whispering them, not just thinking about them, but actually opening our mouth, lifting our hands, and choosing to praise God even in the midst of darkness. And let's think about the future that we have in Jesus Christ and hope that he has brought to us in this wonderful season. And in a few moments after we respond with praise, the team that went to Romania is going to come on stage and give us an overview and update on what happened there, how how they themselves responded to the suffering over there by being the hands and feet of Jesus. So let's praise together. Thanks for hanging out with us at Generation. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Generation Pensacola or go to the website at generationpensacola.com and from wherever you download your podcasts. If today's teaching impacted you, we'd love to hear about it. So please drop us a note.